What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Ronnie Martinez at CEAS Investments. CEAS is a single family office that invests aggressively across stages. The fund focuses primarily on B2B SaaS, established marketplaces, logistics, and robotics. And within her role, Ronnie spends her time sourcing, evaluating, and supporting companies. In this talk, we discuss parallels between athletics and venture investing, the sustainability of Florida as a tech hub, and differences in dynamics between family offices and traditional venture funds. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're excited to bring one of our friends who's an OG in the Miami scene, Ronnie Martinez from CAS, a family office that we're actually not allowed to reveal uh, who the family is behind it, but they do some really cool deals and uh, we're honored to have her on the show. Would you, Ronnie, would you be down to give us a little bit of info on your background, maybe walk us through who you are and how you got to where you are today. If you got to keep that low key, it's no worries. But um, yeah, let's uh, let's dive into it. Please. No, hey guys, thanks for having me. For sure, I can do background on me, and then we can get into kind of who CAS is. I I'm actually originally from Canada. I was born in Ottawa. Went to high school near Toronto. Played literally every sport under the sun. Like my parents put me in gymnastics. I did all of the classics like volleyball, basketball, soccer. In Canada, ice hockey is one of those. And then, like, I even did downhill slalom ski racing competitively for a season. Like, I literally was put in everything. I had no idea what the sports landscape was like in the U.S. So when I was about 13, 14, I basically went all in on soccer, loved the game, still do, and found out that you can get athletic scholarships to come down to school in the U.S. So that was when I basically made that one of my goals and ended up committing to go play at the University of Miami, studied business there. So international finance, marketing, entrepreneurship. I actually took one course on VC and private equity my senior year that kind of gave me an intro into what VC even is. I thought it was super interesting, but honestly, my thought was like, I'm not going to do this for, you know, 20 years. And this is like the end game type thing. I was on track to, to play pro, play professional soccer. That was my plan for the longest time. And then I actually met my current boss who they were hiring for somebody straight out of undergrad to come in and literally just source early stage venture deals on behalf of the family office. I've been doing that for three years now. I've made seven investments. It's been like the coolest opportunity. And I, sometimes it's like, oh, I gave up going to play pro. And sometimes people don't get that, but it's also, it was such a good opportunity to come in and do this. And the way that it's gone for three years, like no regrets at all. So that's actually really cool. We have not heard that story before. Very curious as to what it was like for you to decide to not go pro <laughs> and instead going to investing 
uh, under this family office. What decisions were you weighing or outcomes were you weighing and, and uh, why'd you decide to make that move then? Yeah, so I feel like a lot of people really glamorize what it is being a professional athlete. And what you think of is mostly guys who are professional athletes and they make a ton of money and they're able to do so much on top of their sport because they're financially really stable. I think that on the women's side, especially in, in women's soccer, and it's getting there, like it's changing and hopefully in the next decade, it'll get to a place where it's feasible for a lot of people to build their careers as a professional athlete and then continue doing that and be set and then not have to worry as much. But for the majority of women who go and play professional, it's I'm going to go overseas for a few years, do a couple, two or three seasons, make enough money to get by. But long-term, it doesn't really set you up very well for a, a long career or even just financially well enough to be able to jump into the next thing, take your time and figure out what you're interested in. So for me, I've always knew, and just based off of like friends who I know who are currently playing or friends who have gone and done it. And now they're like, okay, what do I do? While it was super appealing because it's an awesome experience. The fact that I had this incredible opportunity come up that I knew was not going to be there if I decided to go play for a couple of years, it didn't make the decision easy because I still miss playing every day, but it just made the most sense long-term career-wise for me to go this route. And I still get questions because people are like, why would you not play professional? That's so many people's dreams. And it definitely was my dream, but that, that those were some of the, the insights and ways that I was thinking about it. That makes a ton of sense. I think you're, you're right. And I think also like just the, the existing dynamics between certain sports and compensation makes it really tough. I, I used to think about what if I went pro playing lacrosse or something? Like most people don't know this, but I play like lacrosse and basketball and a few other things. And yeah, I just couldn't see the path. Uh, for you, it was a little bit different. I do think that some people who, who go down the, the really WNBA path end up doing pretty well for themselves. But having an opportunity to go work for a like hyper wealthy family office directly out of college is a game changer for life. That's, that's like very easy to see. Can you talk a little bit about how playing the game and playing at that level has, has converted into you doing this profession? Totally. Yeah. I think that being an athlete helps no matter what kind of a profession you go into. I think that there's a ton of parallels between being a, a high level competitive athlete and being a VC. Obviously there's all the classics, like you've got the grit, the perseverance, like you can put your head down and just work, do what needs to be done because you're used to that. You've been doing it for, you know, years. I think some other ones that I know have come in handy for me have been just like being coachable and taking criticism. Like I, I never really take any of that personally, especially given the fact that when I first came into VC, I hardly knew anything. And my direct boss, our team is super small. He literally took it upon himself to literally show me the ropes from the very beginning. And it was a lot of you know, starting from scratch, which was amazing, but I had to be okay, like not knowing what I didn't know and then being willing to fail at certain things and just get back, get right back up and keep going. So I think that's something that's not looked at as much when it comes to skills that you learn being an athlete. And then on top of that, I feel like I learned so many social skills being part of teams and being competing for so long that I didn't even know I was learning at the time. And now having been in more of a professional 
work office setting for a few years, you really realize how how they come in handy, like being a team player, like being able to relate, relate to people, connect with people, networking, first in person and then over the past year, literally virtually. And then a big part of being a VC is literally just being humble and not having an ego. You're constantly talking with founders and innovators and people who are working on these incredible technologies, are incredibly intelligent and most of the time you're not the smartest person in the room, right? Like you're the one learning, you're the one listening and you need to be okay with that. So all of that is relevant. There's probably more that I'm missing, but it seems a pretty seamless transition for, I know there's probably a ton of VCs that are doing very well that were athletes in the past. Oh yeah, I think think at the end of the day, most of this stuff isn't impossible to do. Like my thought is like even rocket science probably isn't that hard to do if you put the right rigor to it and have the discipline and patience to get better. And any person who's made it to that level of anything in their life or they're one of the best in the world, they can reapply it, especially if, if they're younger. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm certain you're crushing it. We've seen, we've seen that and heard that around the community. Thank you for sharing your talent, <laughs> top one percenter mentality to our field and making the competition a little bit more stiff. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate that. No, it's all about mindset. Most definitely. So let's think. I'm very curious as to if you can give us just a bit about your fun. So can you like pitch out your fun, what you spend time working on within your role and anything else that you can talk about? Yeah. So the only thing I can't tell you guys is like the name of the person who we represent. Like it's not I feel like I gave you the wrong impression of trying to shroud this in mystery. But like CAS Investments is online. We have a website. We have a portfolio. It's the venture arm of a single family office. I just can't tell you like the person we represent. It's literally balance sheet investing on behalf of one individual. Like we haven't raised capital from any other LPs. It's a super unique situation. We have a tiny team. It's my boss who's the CIO who helps with other stuff within the family office, but launched the internal fund, you call it, eight years ago, and then myself. So very flexible when it comes to check size and rounds that we can participate in. We don't really have ownership targets because of that reason. We more so have like dollar amount targets that we have at certain stage, but again, super flexible. We've come in, we've led rounds, we follow. We have about 210 million under management when it comes to our direct investments and about 60 portfolio companies. So that ranges all the way from super early stage deals. You have a ton of those that are, we're continually, we keep investing in. And then we have some early stage vets that have grown like Fivetran, Latch, who are both unicorns now, Four Kites, that's incredible. And then some other top companies that we didn't necessarily get in like before the A, but are fantastic companies like Apartment List, Indigo, Data Miner, plus one robotics, Uncork, Webflow, all sorts of stuff. So uh, we're all over the map. We invest from pre-seed to, you know, series D. We've done some pre-IPO deals. Yeah, that's just like a little overview. But generally, it's just we are super flexible. That's our thing. Love it. Love it. So you all are based in South Florida, where more and more tech people are relocating permanently, the real estate market is getting hot. Like I, I remember when COVID first started, I was able to go get like a super great deal in Miami. 
And uh, nowadays, it costs more to live there than my apartment. And I know Clay is down there as well. He's not in Miami, but he's in South Do you think that this influx of tech talent is sustainable? Or do you think it's short-lived? What are your thoughts and why? I'm hoping that it's sustainable. I Obviously, we're in Delray Beach, so it's an hour north of Miami. And before COVID, I really didn't spend that much time in Miami. I was flying around the U.S., going to Canada. We'd invested in one Florida company. But obviously, over the past year, there's a ton of talent that's either relocating to South Florida because they can work remotely from wherever and it's just a great place to be. Income taxes, there's no state income tax. Uh, And then companies who are moving their offices, which I think is more of a permanent switch. I think that when we get to about like end of July, August, when it gets really hot in the summer and humid and it rains, like rainstorms every single day, you're gonna see some people questioning, if I can work remotely from wherever, why would I be here? And then you'll get some people who might leave, but I think that there is a great ecosystem growing and a lot of resources. And obviously the mayor is super on board and trying to be incredibly innovative. So I think that it's gonna be a mix. I think some people are going to stay. I think some people are gonna leave. Some people might live a more nomadic lifestyle and be here for parts of the year and then go to other places. But I think no matter what, it's gonna just keep growing and the ecosystem's gonna get better and better. We're on that track now. I don't know if it'll ever get to the same level as like a San Francisco Bay Area or New York, but it's definitely a great place to be. Agreed, dude. Waking up and then going for the going for the beach runs in Florida, which for some reason, like I've been living all over. Like I've been living in Mexico, Costa Rica, Puerto Rico, St. Thomas, Dominican Republic, and all these places. For some reason, <laughs> the sand in Florida is the hardest to run in. <laughs> and uh, like it's beautiful. You get your body right. The cost of a salad is nearing that of, of California, so whatever. But no, like I, I, I do think that it might just be sustainable. Clay, what do you think? I'm hoping it is. I, yeah, so Ronnie, I'm on the other coast right now. I'm in Naples. I was in Miami for pretty much all of October through February, and I loved it. But I don't see myself ever going back up north. Like the idea of living in New York, Boston, somewhere that's gray or colder, like I don't want to do that. So I don't know. I hope like other people have the same mindset. I feel like everybody here has been really open to meeting and then the people I've met are just generally really helpful and want to actually help you achieve your goals. So I don't know, I'm like, I'm rooting for it, but I don't really have a really thought out opinion on it. Yeah, I think there's, everybody is very invested in just growing the ecosystem too. So it's more of a team effort, right? Like everybody's there to help each other because they're invested in the ecosystem and it's less of a selfish, other people can't win because I, so that I can win the thing. It's really great. It's awesome to see. Totally agree. Agreed, agreed. So Clay and I have been wanting to focus a lot more on family offices and LPs. Like we, we love traditional funds and we love all our friends who've been on here thus far. But it's just so interesting when we find people who come from a family office background. Do you technically, you've only worked in the family office side, but just from what in your role versus what you hear about from your friends and more traditional funds, 
Can you talk a little bit about the, the differences, internal dynamics, restrictions, reporting, diligence, culture, even just like general lifestyle things? Like what are some of the differences you've seen? Yeah, family offices are very interesting because I feel like every single one is different. There, There's a variety of what you could call family offices, right? Like there's multifamily offices. There are families who have been super successful who then turn into venture investors and they're the actual ones doing the investing. And there are certain families like the one that I work for who it's literally one person who hires out a team and then builds like this little internal funds that only works for him. I think generally a lot of family offices work under the radar. And I know even before I came on board three years ago, we didn't even have a website because networks are already established. There's already a, a great amount of deal flow coming in and a, a network between family offices. And sometimes families are also LPs and other funds. So they get access to, to deals in that way or just have their networks built out. So there isn't as much of a need as a family office to generate this public brand per se about the fund because they don't have to attract LPs. They don't have to necessarily attract as much incoming deal flow in that way. So that has been pretty interesting. Obviously they wanted me to go out and look for early stage deals. I was traveling across the country, going to secondary markets, going to centers of entrepreneurship on campuses, accelerators, pitch competitions, just meeting with people in different ecosystems. And we needed some sort of public facing, you know, website or something to, to show people that we were legit. So obviously that's there now, but there are still a ton of family offices who don't even have that. So that's an interesting thing that people I don't think are really aware of. And then as far as like internal dynamics, it's not the same as a traditional fund. There's a hierarchy typically at a fund of different levels. You come in as an analyst or an associate, and then there's senior associates, and then you've got principals and partners, and usually there's some sort of partner track there. You're either on or you're not. And a lot of funds have these fantastic you know, operating teams who come in and really help the portfolio companies to a, an even higher level. We have a team of two. And at this point, pretty much unlimited capital just keep going out and deploying. So we spend a ton of our time on sourcing, on diligence, on looking for new deals. And since there's only two of us, it's a pretty flat structure, right? Like we move super quickly. We can make decisions very quickly. And it's not, it's almost pretty startup -y as opposed to with funds set responsibilities whereas I've been an analyst for three years and my responsibilities have just changed and evolved however it's made sense over the past three years I take on more responsibilities in some places than others I don't do what a you know typical analyst does because I go out I meet with founders I recommend investments lead diligence and make recommendations and then I own those investments and I am the point of contact for those portfolio companies it's just it's a very different and unique structure based off of however the family wants to do it. Is there anything that you're super, super interested in particular about family offices and something you've been thinking about at all? Clay, you got this one. I don't know. I think in general, it's just like the internal dynamics, like how they differ from traditional funds, just because like that's the only experience we have. Like we worked at traditional funds, 
understand the LP structure there, understanding reporting to those LPs, and then just team dynamics. Like we've always wondered how life is different for family office members. And I'm just like curious what it's looked like on the inside, but yeah, you got it overview but if you have anything else we'd love to hear it too yeah honestly at the end of the day when it comes to representing a family like that's your sole lp so everything that you have to think about at a fund when you're doing your reporting and answering to those lps it's the same thing it's just all focused on on one party so whatever they want to see that goes right so our investment memos the diligence everything is catered around what they like to see what they're most interested in when it comes to the companies, which which obviously can make it a lot easier because you only have one person to answer to. You can you only have to get one no or yes on every decision. You can move very quickly. But it's also it's interesting because you're always on call. You're always whatever they want to say goes. So it's it's very cool, but it's definitely very different than how everything is very, I think, strictly structured at a fund. And you typically have your investment committee meetings that take up your entire Monday. And you go over all the deals and we still do that, but it's more of an ad hoc, like very quick, less formal basis, ongoing conversations all the time that grow into an investment memo. And we like to keep that structure a little bit so that our principal has time to give his yes or his his no on certain deals, but we can move extremely quickly if we need to, to to get a deal, to win a deal, to get an answer back to, to founders super quickly. Team dynamic wise, I've, I've just been extremely lucky to be part of a team that was very straightforward from day one of this is an incredible opportunity. We want you to come in, give you a ton of autonomy to go and just do what makes sense to learn, to grow, to empower you to just take it from here. I, I honestly, I don't have much to compare that to when it comes to working at a fund since I haven't, but it's been, I don't know. And I don't know if that's a part of being in a family office environment or just my particular family office, but yeah, super grateful so far for how it's gone. It's super fair. So I, so on my end, like I, I worked at a family office slash not because I worked at Point Seventy Two, a Steve Cohen shop, but it's effectively like an institutionalized like hedge fund <laughs> that has like PM groups and then a completely separate spinoff into the privates, like with the Cohen private ventures and then the. Point seventy two ventures. And I totally know what you mean by having all of the things roll up into one person. But it didn't really feel like that because it wasn't as close-knit as, as like a traditional family office, which the history there and the structures there make it a lot different. So that's really, really cool. We want to get as many people from your side of the world as possible. So at some point, we're definitely at the end of this going to ask you who else you think would be really good to talk to. But with that, we tend to try to make it, I guess, two-sided here. Do you have any questions for me and Clay? Sure. Yeah. What has been the toughest part of running this podcast? Like logistics wise, making it happen while you have so many other things going on. I feel like everybody probably asks about more so the substance side of what you're working on, but how, I know you guys are in different locations. I don't know how much time that you're splitting on everything else you're working on, but Logistics wise, how is it putting on this podcast? How has it been growing it up to this point? Tyler, you can go first there. Yeah, yeah. So the podcast itself, this part has become a little bit easier because the truth is venture capital 
just by design is like a field of whether you want to like say VCs are all talk or not builders or whatnot, like whether you believe that or not, it's a field of incredibly interesting people. As the community grew and like really from day one, because we, we got really lucky starting this off with some really solid people who are our friends from our investing side of things. We had really interesting people to talk to and there was never a shortage of like, how can we go find another like smart, interesting person to interview or hang out with because we don't even really do this interview style. I think at first the logistics of like editing this was trash. But um, then we found uh, AI enabled cloud-based podcast editor called Descript, which puts everything that you do into text form and removes filler words and all these other things. So that saved us a ton of time. I think thinking about distribution and how to go about it is good or was like a good challenge and something we had to figure out. But it, it seems as long as we've stayed close to our mission, which is uplifting the next generation of leaders in the space, like it, it hasn't been hard. I think that's been our biggest challenge is just like always being ears on. What does the community need? Do they need more educational resources? Do they need opportunities to build wealth for themselves? Do they need a place where they can go meet everyone they need without having to go scrub through LinkedIn and hope to get intros and they can just do it direct? It's, do people like you who are super dope that like a few people recommended to us, do they need the world to like see like how bright their light shine? And like our whole thing is just as long as we hear people and do what they say would truly help them grow or, or make them happy. It's not the hardest thing. From a time crunch perspective, it does take extra time, but it's like in this world that we live in, we can either be on Instagram or, or wild and out, you know, <laughs> or we could spend the extra two hours or three hours of our week doing this and building really cool stuff that over time will end up helping a lot of people. I love that. Yeah, I just echo that. I think the thing that we're still trying to hack is distribution. So I think like we've started to build somewhat of a repeatable system in terms of getting great guests, getting them to refer other great guests at the end, like figuring out the right questions to ask to maximize the time spent on the phone. So I think the content creation piece is getting there or closer to getting there than the distribution piece. With the distribution piece, there's just so many other options to choose. So just trying to think through creative ways of getting it in front of the right audience, potential audience, whether that's like shooting out on traditional social, like doing some more unscalable things, just putting out to people more directly or reaching out to other people in adjacent fields or even people in college that could find some of this content and material interesting. I don't know. I think that's the piece that we're working through right now, but it's getting there. Awesome. I'm excited for you guys. Like this is this is an amazing thing you guys are doing and and all for it. Excited to see how it grows. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And if you have any places where you think that you and your in your career or in your path could use some lift, let us know. Like our whole thing is to serve the community and we are the community. So every time someone else says it's something then you're like, damn, do we need that too? Probably. Thank you for that. And then in terms of family office LP side of things, if you people who should be part of the community or that we should meet, please let us know. That's something that we want to grow because as our community gets bigger and ages and more people who are more senior come in, like 
creating that bridge is a huge target for us. Like we want to be able to facilitate the full stack of what this job encompasses or what this career encompasses. But, uh, but yeah, that if you have any other questions, let it rip and we'll go, we'll go as hard as we can. And if not, we'll jump into the quick, quick fire questions and Clay can take the lead. Quick fire, let's go for it. So Ronnie, do these at the end. We say that we have five questions. We say they're supposed to be answered in two sentences or less. We joke that we don't have the best hit rate on actually getting them in two sentences or less. But anyway, that's, those are some really light guardrails, but whatever works best for you. First one we have is what's a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? So, I actually recently saw something online saying that as a junior VC going to investment committee, you should be bringing the deals that the partners are going to, that the decision makers are going to. And I know that's part of the decision making process, but I think that a lot of the value that you can bring as a junior person on the team is maybe recognizing certain opportunities that other people might miss, or at least looking at markets in a different way, having different you know, life experiences that lead to different user experiences. So I think that while that's not necessarily bad advice, I wouldn't make that the main criteria when you decide whether to bring something up to investment committee or make a recommendation. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's a first. I think that's really good advice. I think you, a lot of people just get in this habit of pitching stuff because they don't want to ruffle any feathers and just pitch stuff that's like more conservative, which is like very much against the grain of how you actually generate returns. Like you got to get some stuff that's not consensus. I think that makes a ton of sense. Next one, in the last year, what new belief behavior habit has most improved your life? I would say actually just because over the past year, I think I've spend so much more time at home and obviously working more than I probably would have if we hadn't been in lockdowns and COVID and all that. Just taking intentional little breaks to take my dog actually on more walks for for my benefit as opposed to just her daily walk has been really great for just probably just my mental health, being able to get my thoughts in order, enjoying some time outside. It's been a game changer for me. Love it. What kind of dog you have? She's a Newfie. Nice. I'm going to have to Google what that is. I don't know. That off the top of my head, but, <laughs> yeah, you um, normally don't see them in Florida, but yeah, I'll let you Google it. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. All right. Next one. Aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? Yeah. Every single person would say having to say no all the time. I'm convinced if you guys didn't put that in there. I think it's not necessarily the worst part of venture, but something that I've been thinking about quite a bit is because there's such a long feedback loop when it comes to, especially as a junior investor, somebody just starting out their career, you don't really know if you're doing a really good job for a number of years, especially if you are doing a great job, you shouldn't find out if you're doing a good job for five to 10 years. So there's a lot of pressure that's put on younger people in the industry to be putting out content and be portraying themselves as experts in certain spaces when, and a lot of the time they are, and they've done a lot of research, but I think trying to navigate that pressure of being able to build a personal brand as a VC, put out amazing content for people and generate a lot of value for the community, but then also 
being aware of the fact that you're still learning. There's going to be some time before you really know if all of your bets are paying off and not really just falling into that trap of trying to make it seem like you, you always know what you're doing. Yeah, I love that. I think I totally agree with that. I think there's so many people that are just thinking like the way to building a following, understanding what you're doing. So it has to come through just years of pumping out content and just spending a bunch of time to that, which directly takes time away from actually meeting founders. I don't know. I've, I've thought about that myself. I don't know what the, everybody has a different approach to it. It's a balance. Yeah, it's a balance and you have to play to your strengths. But like thinking that everyone has to follow the same playbook of just putting out a piece of content every single week or like really deep dive long form essays. That doesn't seem like that's going to work for everybody. I've heard a lot of people say the opposite of that. So I think that is a really good, different opinion. All right, got two more here. A lot of our audience are junior VCs with those aspiring to break into venture. What's your best piece of advice to that crowd of people? Yeah, so I I guess this would work for either people who are already in junior investing roles or people who are looking to get into it. But when you come across a company or an opportunity that seems like a great opportunity, maybe you recognize something that maybe others don't see, I think it's important to start conversations with either your team, the people who oversee your work or higher up than you within your fund or your office, or just people in your network if you're not necessarily in that role yet and start those conversations to talk through why you think that they're great opportunities. Because worst case scenario is maybe you miss something that they recognize right off the bat because of their experience of why it might not be a good fit or a good investment. Best case scenario is you recognize something that they didn't. And I think that no matter what, you're constantly learning and you're constantly getting better at what you're doing, recognizing certain things and you just have to not be afraid to, to start those conversations. Love that. Love it. All right, last one. Who is a mentor that you want to give credit to? Definitely my boss, Mike Wall. He is, I like to think, one of the, one of the best VCs that probably you've never heard of. He started CAS eight years ago, has made some incredible investments, doesn't have a very public persona, but has pretty much, like I said, taken me under his wing from the very beginning, has been showing me the ropes, has been teaching me how the industry works and letting me go off on my own and actually get some at-bats, like making seven investments, helping me along the way, and has really given me some invaluable experience that I'm super grateful for. It's awesome. That's awesome. I love people like Radar. Just moving in silence. Well, cool. I think that's all I've got on my end, unless Tyler, you've got anything else? Oh, on my end, I'm, I'm pretty good. Ronnie, you feel free to ask us things as well. Awesome. On the, on the end of people to recommend coming on here, David Brellenberg, who is actually normally based in New York, but I think he's actually in Miami right now. He, he's running Dune Ventures, which is a, an interactive content fund it's esports gaming that kind of stuff but he's actually also part, kind of part of our office which could be an interesting conversation for you guys to have mm, is he do you know if he's part of confluence already probably we'd love to at the bare minimum get to know him he can do an introduction awesome yeah.
Perfect. So on our end, we're going to, we're going to wrap this all up, clean it, scrub it, use the script like we were telling you, and then uh, we'll get it back to you in a few days and uh, maybe sooner, maybe even today, who knows? And then after that, we'll push it out in the next few weeks and we'll push it across our socials. And we just ask you to do the same to make sure that as many people see it as possible. And um, if you have any, anything that you want us to attach to the newsletter on your behalf, like, like we were saying, like any written pieces, which seems like that's the anti-thesis for you, <laughs> let us know. I, yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily like anti-thesis, it's just trying to make sure that I'm 100% about that content before I put it out, which I don't know if that's the best strategy. It's, I'm trying to figure out that balance, but yeah, I don't have an issue with it. I love all the content that's out there because I, I benefit from it. Everybody benefits from it. Uh, it's just the the pressure on people to have to do that that I'm not a big fan of. Fair. Very fair. I agree with you. <laughs> okay, cool. We'll clean this all up and we'll be in touch very soon. We hope you have an uh, amazing day. We appreciate it hanging out with you. I really wish we could have told people who your your LP head <laughs> was, but it's cool. And <laughs> well, that's even in our like term sheets. Like we have a privacy clause. They can't even use his name for promoting the the round or their company or anything. Just his wow. personal preference. Yeah. Respect it. That's Clay style. That's Clay style. One hundred percent. Like Clay is one hundred percent against us doing anything that's like showboaty or like pushes ourselves. Our push push us into the world <laughs> versus pushing the community into the world. And yeah, I think the world will move towards that because there's just so much self-promotion, but there's definitely a balance in from my perspective, but respect to the pin game of those who decide to remain silent. Yeah, and it's really cool seeing all the incredible things he's done aside from just like our fund. There's so many other things that he's working on or has worked on or been a part of and like the world doesn't even know but he really doesn't care it's crazy i really appreciate it if you guys are obviously clay you're in naples still yeah i'm on the other coast i actually have a couple of friends that live over near west palm which is like a little bit closer to your neck of the woods but yeah. if I'm back over there would love to grab coffee or something yeah just let me know cool well cool um ron i really appreciate it again this is great awesome appreciate it guys have a good I guess Friday. Have a good weekend. Yeah. Thank you. Blessings. Huge thanks again to Ronnie for coming on this week. We hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Ronnie, we've linked her social info in the description below. And you can also find your contact info in the Confluence BC directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at muckercapital.com. Hope to hear from you all soon.